episode 226 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log, with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. You can get a free three-day trial of the Ground School app by visiting learnthefinerpoints.com. Hey guys, my name is uh, Chris Turner. I'm a corporate pilot um, flying out of Van Nuys. I uh, flight instruct uh, part-time and dedicate full-time to corporate flying. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Today's podcast is the first ever podcast recorded from my house. It is not the best setup. I'm currently sitting on the floor. Uh, <laughs> it, it looks like a mess. On Instagram, I posted a picture of it. So if you don't follow on Instagram, you missed out because it's really hard to explain. I have t- so many boxes around me I, and just a complete mess. But we're making it work. You know, we're, we're, we're getting some more content out there for you. And today's episode is with Chris Turner. Chris actually messaged me uh, a couple of days ago and I was like, hey man. No, he was like, hey man, I'd love to be in the podcast. I was like, cool. I'd love to keep you in mind. Yeah, I'll get back in touch. The next day, I was like, I need an episode tomorrow. Can you do a recording? He said, yeah. So here we are. And it turned out to be a fantastic episode. Chris has a fascinating story and one that I think a lot of people get a lot of value out of uh, being international, coming to the States, perfecting his English, flying in Alaska, seaplanes. There's there's a lot in this episode that I think a lot of you will get a lot of good out of it. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you do, leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Spotify. You can also leave reviews there as well. And make sure to follow Pilot the Pilot and Pilot's Coffee. Now that the move's over, hoping to get back with the coffee business full throttle and I'm making sure we can get all that out. And I know everyone's been asking about the steep packs that we haven't had them in stock for a while, but we're getting those back here soon. Should be putting order uh, in about a week or so. So hopefully we'll get those soon and get those out because I know you all have been asking for them, but I don't want to take up any more of your time. So any further ado, here's Chris Turner. Chris, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. How's it going, man? Glad to be here. It's an honor. Yeah, I'm happy to have you on. Like I said earlier, you reached out at the perfect time. Uh, I'm currently, I have my, I'm in my new podcast studio, which is my computer on the ground and I'm laying on the ground with my monitor on the ground. So there's not my, <laughs> if the audio sounds bad, then I don't know what I did wrong. But anyways, we are here. We are making it happen uh, and I'm excited to have you on. All right, man. It's a pleasure to be here. It sounds like you're in a comfy spot. It sounds yeah. pretty good from this side. Well, good. Well, I might be moving around because it's probably kill my back a little bit with all the moving. We're doing. <laughs> but anyways, let's start with you, man. Why aviation? What was it about you that got you interested in aviation? Um, I guess my family. I'm a third generation pilot. My dad is in aviation. My mom is in aviation. My grandparents were in aviation. So I found it suitable and I didn't see myself doing anything else really and fell in love with it. When you say they're in aviation, what do they do? Uh, my dad's a pilot. My mom was a flight attendant. My grandfather was a pilot as well. And my grandfather was a military pilot. Oh, cool. Are they flying for the airlines? Fly for fun? How do they, what do they do? So my dad flies for Air India. So we all used to live in India. My parents still do, but I moved here for for flight training, essentially. And that's where my whole aviation career really started. So you, you grew um, up born and raised in India? I was born in Venezuela and 
then stayed there till about I was eight years old. Then I came to the States and that's when my dad was flying for American Airlines or better said American Eagle, the feeder for American Airlines. And then stayed here for three years and then went back to the to Venezuela and stayed there till I was about 17 or 18 and then moved to India for about five years with my family. And then, um, you've been around, yeah. huh? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I came here because of flight training. I mean, this is the country to learn how to fly and to continue flying. I mean, this is the only country where you can do GA and then flight instruct and then fly gliders and then be part of an airline or part of a corporate department and still fly part-time in the military. What? You know? uh, I don't know if you know this, but I've never really talked to anyone. I guess I've talked to one person that was in Venezuela, uh, but what does the GA or like just the training process look like in India and in Venezuela? If you know, I know it's completely, probably completely different and more airline driven, but is, do you have any insight on how that works? Yeah, it's, um, it's very, it's highly airline driven. Um, if you're not part of the military or the airlines, uh, you're really actually flight instructing, but there's really not much leeway for general aviation per se. And if there is, it's very restrictive. So for example, in the United States, you have to get a type rating for anything upwards of 12,500 or a jet, right? In the, my country, you get essentially a type rating for every aircraft that you fly and you have to stay current in that aircraft every six months. So essentially every 172, 182, 206 that you might fly, you have to get certified and current on it. Interesting. Um, so it's, it's yeah. more than a, not just a biannual review. It's, it's uh once every year or once every six months or twice a year, you have to what, just go up with a flight instructor or is it more intensive than that? Correct. You either, if, if you're current, um, you would go to what the, the, the FAA would be the equivalent to, um, INAC it's called I N A C. Um, and you would go and show them that you're current in that airplane, and then they would certify you and say, yeah, you can continue flying. If not, you either have to get recertified or you drop that essentially license because those are – here we get certificates, meaning that they technically don't have an expiration date. Um, over there, licenses do have an expiration date. Here, you just have to uh, get recurrent essentially. Over there, there's not really – you would have to renew your license. Wow, that's interesting. Um, did you ever think about flying over there? Was that a process that you're thinking about, especially since your dad was flying at Air India? Was there probably kind of a pathway for you with him maybe knowing some people or anything like that? Yeah, I thought about it. Um, my to, to fly in India, though, I mean, my dad is a, as an instructor of instructors that in, in ICAO standards, that's a TRI and a TRE. Um, but to be flying as a foreigner, as they call it in India, they either require a lot of experience, uh, because they will show preference to their locals, obviously. So the same is true in Venezuela, but in Venezuela, I had the opportunity, but it's not the safest, um, country to be in and neither the most lucrative. Um, so I could have had the chance right out of flight school to go and join an airline at 250 hours. Um, but I wasn't really interested in that route at the time. And so I just decided to stay in the United States and it's been a roller coaster of a ride, man. How hard was it for you to leave your family and come back to the States when they're in India? Was that a pretty easy decision? Cause you knew the goal at hand or was it a pretty tough one to make? 
It was a little bit of both. I mean, um, I've never been one to really dwell on what I didn't have in terms of like, oh, I'm missing my family like a lot. Um, but every time I spent time with them, it was fully invested in them. So I just knew that the goal was to become a pilot and I was going to see them every year apart from COVID. And um, so I, I just really stayed true to the to the task at hand and just follow the goal of becoming a pilot. What type of pilot? That was to be determined. And so, yeah. What was, uh, it's, it's really interesting to, to hear this kind of perspective because a lot of people I talked to are like, yeah, there's an airport right down the street. But it's like, no, I flew from India to the United States to go training. What were you looking for when you're picking a flight school? Did you already have one in mind? Did you, did you go to Embry-Riddle? Did you go to one of the big ones? Or did you find like a local part 91 school or part 61 school that worked best for you? That's a great question, actually. That took months and months of research. But uh, um, essentially I was studying... Uh, finishing what they call a levels in the in the british um curriculum of studies which is the advanced levels from cambridge university and i was finishing that and then um in the process of that i was like okay well i don't want to go to college i don't want to go to university because my parents were really adamant as to getting a plan b or not even being a pilot because they said it was a very unstable career or if anything happens to you physically you you're running the risk of losing it all and all that stuff so i was listening to my parents uh, at the beginning and i was going to go and study architecture because i really like or enjoy drawing um and then the first year that started and really didn't agree very much with me um so i sat down with my parents and told them hey this is the situation i would hate for all your money that you're helping me out with to be not put to good use. So my dad was adamant as to finding a place to, uh, to learn how to fly that didn't have a tower, but that had a tower really close by that I could cross country to. And a mentor of mine that was an instructor of my father, he recommended a flight school in the West coast of Florida that had like a grass strip and a paved runway, but no tower. And that they have a flight school right there owned and operated by a husband and wife. And the husband used to be a former Top Gun instructor and the, and the wife was an FAA examiner. So they ran that really well. And to this day, I appreciate heavily that I went to the place that I did. Um, all my soft field landings were actually in a soft field and the short fields were actually in a short field. So it was really cool. And we had towered airports really close by for when the cross country time or the instrument time came to, to play. So. My parents were adamant as to learning how to fly first, um, focusing entirely on the inside of the aircraft to then had the time to focus on the outside for frequencies and airspace and all that stuff. So learn how to fly in a mom and pop's flight school. And it was amazing. You're probably one of the only, oh, I don't know. Are you a US, U.S. citizen or were you a U.S. citizen at that point? I'm not a U.S. citizen yet. Um, I'm a green card holder and, and funny enough, uh, I wanted to go to Embry-Riddle because in the school that I was, um, they offered me a 30% ride um, to come and, and study and fly here in Embry-Riddle in Daytona. And I pitched that idea to my dad before this flight school. And he was like, sorry, but we can't afford this. And that, that's what happened. And especially as an international student, it's a little harder because they, the, the rates are different for a national U.S. citizen or even a local to Florida state. Um, so the, the price was quite high to, to be quite frank. And so that didn't work out. So I found this school and 
that that worked out amazing. And it was still a 141 school, um, but it was a mom and pop situation. So it felt like a mixture between 141 and 61, really. Um, Were you the only international student there? No, that flight school was notorious for having all international. So my oh, roommates wow. were from, yeah, from China, from Japan, from Korea, a lot of Asians, a lot of uh, Latin American uh, as well. So the, the the school was very well set up. The school basically bought a bunch of houses and they would put two students per room and every house would have four rooms. And so we were all very mingled. You would eat and breathe aviation there. I mean, we were in walking distance to the airport. Um, so it was very, very, um, immersive into aviation and really nothing else to do in that town. So it, it helped out a ton. <laughs> What's the flight school called and what city was it located in? It was in Crystal River, Florida, uh, the home of the manatees. And, um, it, the, the flight school is called Crystal Aero Group. Um, and I, I really enjoyed every second of that flight training over there. And the fact that it was a, a, there was still several students. There was a lot of people in it, but it was still a home vibe, small school feel. Uh, we had like 15 aircraft. Um, so it, it, it was the best decision I could have made, really. What was it like with uh, all the different cultures living in, the, in one house? Was it easy to get along with everyone? Was, it, was English tough between everyone or how did the vibe go in those houses? It was a little bit of both. There's definitely some stories to it. But what my, my goal to come to the United States, so flight instructing in the United States seems like a means to an end type of job of get your hours and get out. Um, my goal from the very beginning, because my parents were, my dad was an instructor and my grandfather was an instructor. I always looked upon it or revered as like a V job. So when I came to the United States, I was like from day one of PPL, I was like, my goal is to be an instructor. Right. So it helped out a ton that I was surrounded by international students because you would have to find different ways to say the same thing. Um, and sometimes in even different languages or even hand signs. <laughs> so it helped a lot and, and made my transition to becoming an instructor slightly easier. That's awesome. I, I'm just thinking about the, the dynamics of, of what's going on. Cause you talk about, like I said, talk about most people and they're like, Oh, there's just a local airport down the road. I'm going to go there. But you found this really, I don't want to say hole in the wall, but like this small little airport that has such a niche and in, uh, international students, it, it sounds like a good opportunity. And I get a lot of DMs from international people. I never know where to send them. I never know where, what to do, but here you go. If you have any interest, go check out that school and you never know, it might be for you. For sure. For sure. And, and now the, the school has changed hands a little bit. Um, Mr. Tom Davis, the owner and his wife, um, have gotten a little bit later in life. So they're no longer being examiners or, or the owners. They sold the, the school to a Chinese gentleman that came and took charge of it. Um, so I don't know if the school is the same as it was when I was there, but I enjoyed every second that I spent in that flight school. I really did. What was, so you said your goal was to be an instructor. Like you had no plans to fly jets, no plans to fly for the airlines or solely to be an instructor. <laughs> No, no, no. I definitely had plans to fly jets, but I, my goal was to wherever I go, I want to be an instructor. I wanted to be one of those Czech airmen or whatever, uh, whatever it was. I like the aspect of teaching. Uh, how long was it? I guess the better question is what was your actual training like? Like you said, you loved it, but did you, did you struggle with anything? Was it uh, predicated off uh, a strict 141 style training or was there some more leeway since it's not a typical uh, university type school? 
Uh, it was definitely 141, and we would follow the Jepson um, curriculum. Um, and I would say my biggest struggle at the time that I learned, and because this was an, a, a flight school owned by, let's say, old timers, was really understanding NDBs on my instrument um, and under, understanding NDBs fixed card and movable card. And I know that's all old stuff, but I really had a hard time understanding that, man. And And to this day, sometimes I have to... I have to refresh all of that because it was little things that I never knew until I was put in it that, for example, with the NDB, you had to leave the tone sounding. So you knew that the, the, the NDB was working. If the NDB tone stopped, you knew that NDB was no longer in range or alive. Um, I didn't know that, for example, little things like that. So I, I really had a hard time with that one. Um, and I'd, I'd say that that was really one that I can remember right now that I really struggled with was NDB approaches. Um, and we had, yeah. Because no one or, shoots NDB approaches, right? Like, I mean, how many times in your career have you ever shot an NDB, NDB approach that you weren't able to overlay with some kind of other system, you know, like in a jet or anything like that? Correct. Yeah, correct. So I, I didn't, I, later in life, I didn't s- struggle too much on beating myself up about it, but but also one that I didn't, really enjoy that much was VOR approaches when the VOR was off the field. Oh um, yeah. Those stink. <laughs> that, that one was intense for me too. Um, and I remember distinctly that we would use the cross city VOR in Florida that was off the cross city airport. Um, it was off the field by like seven miles if I remember correctly or something like that. But I, I didn't enjoy those very much. <laughs> no, I don't blame you at all. Uh, what was the biggest kind of, was there any kind of, I don't because you lived in the states for a little bit, right? So you you understood kind of uh, what what the United States culture was like and everything like that. So you don't have any issues culturally at all coming in here, right? Yeah, um, I I guess my parents really teach me and my siblings that we adapt to wherever we're at. So even in India, we didn't go to international schools; we went to Indian schools. So we were really essentially the only. Um, international students per se in the school. So we. When you come to the United States coming from a place like Venezuela or India, it really doesn't seem like a cultural shock at all. It just seems like, oh, okay, well, they just roll different. Let me just adapt to that and and fake it till you make it type of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you never make it, especially if you're in Indian school and you don't understand language, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, um, I learned English for the two years that I was here when I was between eight to 10 or eight to nine. So, and I really didn't really learn it very well until I came here to study for aviation again. Um, and my, my biggest goal is, was to try not and have an accent. So I, I just changed everything around me, my phone, my music, my movies, everything to English to not sound like Sofia Vergara or something like that. You know, you have, I mean, um, you, you sound great. Like your, your English sounds amazing. Like if when you first got on the, I knew that you were from, I think Venezuela, I think I knew that I had no idea about India. But I would have never guessed that you you were from a different country. So, yeah, so that, that's uh, yeah. Thank you, thank you. It was uh, it takes time and effort for sure. Was it hard for you since you kind of had to not to reteach yourself English, but you're very much focused and English is very important when you're flying. Was it was that difficult for you at all? Communication in English? Did you did you think in Spanish and then have to revert everything back and it take a while or would did, did <laughs> it take Yeah, yeah. So. That presented itself as an issue that I didn't even know when I started talking on the radio. And 
And the response from the controller was super American in my ears. So I had to translate it very quickly to, 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 from Spanish or from English to Spanish and Spanish back to English. So I could respond back all in split seconds. So I, that, now that you bring that up, I would say that at the very beginning of my instrument training, it was a struggle, the radios for, I, I would say like the first 10 hours, um, to really, so, so what helped me out and my instructor realized that, and we would write down all the possibilities of what would, what was going to come in that flight and when were they going to clear me for the approach and all that stuff, which in turn helped out on the situational awareness of when things came at a certain time. So at the beginning, I would be reading a piece of paper and I would write it down and and my, my clearance, for example, and then they would bring back with the clearance, but I already kind of guesstimated with my instructor what the clearance was going to be. And so it was easier to read back rather than respond respond back from from a, a call out of the blue the only problem with that is is when they they give you something you weren't expecting and then you freeze and then everything just gets thrown off so i'm sure you had a lot of that too correct yeah so that <laughs> that was the part that and and i was big on to not saying so my flight school would tell you hey tell them that you're a student pilot and i was like no i don't want to tell them that i'm a student pilot because then they're going to talk to me all slow and then if i learn how to talk on the radios in a slow manner, then what's going to happen if or whenever in the future I go to New York at night with bad weather and all that stuff. So that's me just trying to think way so far in advance that I wanted things to be harder now that I'm with an instructor next to me than for it to be harder when I was actually the PIC. Um, so that, that really helped me out. But yes, I, at the beginning, I had to translate stuff from Spanish, from English to Spanish and Spanish back to English. So now um, is it, but second, it worked out. Is it second nature now or now do you, when you hear something, do you still have to translate it or do you think in English or how does that work? Well, they say that you've mastered the language once you've, you can dream in that language. And now I, I'm, I'm glad to say that I can dream in, in English as much as I can dream in Spanish. That's so that's, awesome. that's good. So when, I mean, this is kind of, a, I just want to understand more because I can't speak, you know, Americans are not very good with languages. So, uh, so when <laughs> someone speaks Spanish, do you think in English or does it just go, you just go back and forth? No, you just go back and forth. So it's hilarious, specifically with my wife. Uh, when, for example, a, a fight comes up or something intense or stressful, I boil down to, so because she's, she can speak both languages as well. Um, I boil down to Spanish. She boils down to English. So we go to our native tongues as soon as things get a little bit stressful. Now, over the years, I, I can keep up and sh she can do the same. We both can keep up on each other's opposite language. Um, so it's, it's, it's been, it's been a, a, a funny road to, to oversee the progress of the language. I bet. That's really funny. Uh, you have an argument, you're speaking Spanish and she's yelling at you in English, <laughs> but it like all yep, works together. Yep. That's really funny. We call it, we call that Spanglish. Yep. Absolutely. Um, going to talking about your wife a little bit, how'd you meet her? Did you meet her when you were in flight training or was that a little bit after? No, that was after. Um, so I, when I became, Let's see, when was that? I was going through my instructor rating, um, and that was in DeLand, Florida. And then I met her uh, through a dating site, in, and she was living in Orlando. And she was the manager of a cigar and wine shop um, in, a, in a bougie-looking place in, in Orlando. And we met from there and it was, it worked out from, from the very beginning and the rest was history, you know? That's awesome. And we've been together now for five and a half years. 
Awesome, man. Congrats. The reason I ask is having a partner in aviation can be very difficult. And a lot of times they, they see like how cool it is, but they don't understand the actual struggles that come with it and how it can really damage a relationship uh, over time, especially when the, the kind of the romance or the, the coolness wears off. And it's more of like, all right, well, Chris is gone all the time. Like, what the heck? How have you guys managed to, to to deal with that? Because I'm sure you had similar things. She was like, oh, you're a pilot. That's awesome. But now she's like, great, you're gone for a week. Sweet. Thanks. I'm by myself. For sure. Then that's, that's a very important topic for me. And more specifically, I was aware of it even before I was married or even in, in the relationship with her. Um, because my parents always, my dad always said, you either marry a flight attendant or you marry somebody very understanding. Um. So I obviously married the latter and she's very, very understanding. And since day one, I told her, Hey, these are my goals in aviation. These are my goals in life. If you can respect them, if you can be part of them, that's great. And since very day one, she's been extremely supportive of it. Like extremely, she's never said no to a pop-up flight that I was like, you know, those, when you become an airport bum and that's how it was at the very beginning of my career that I, I didn't have really anybody. I would uh, offer to clean airplanes or stuff like that. or And people would say, hey, kid, I have an empty seat, but you have to be here in five minutes. My wife never. And we could be in the middle of a cinema watching a movie. And my wife would never say no to it. I mean, she's she's been extremely supportive since day one. Does she at least stay and finish the movie or she got to go back home and not watch the rest of the movie? I don't know. I think we both <laughs> left together that, that, that day in that particular time. Um, but even for, for when we went to Alaska, um, I pitched the idea and it was like, Hey babe, what do you think of moving to Alaska? You know? And she didn't, she didn't, she just asked when, what, when are we leaving? What do we pack? That's crazy. And we, pack, pack we coat. packed our car. <laughs> yep. We packed our car and drove from Florida to Alaska. Stop. The very you guys first drove time from we Florida went Florida to Alaska. Yep, and I oh was crossing 32 states and two countries, and it was the, the ride of a lifetime for sure. That's incredible. That's cool. Uh, let's backtrack a little bit before we keep going on this track. Uh, what were your main goals? Obviously, you wanted to be a flight instructor, but did you want to get this done as fast as possible? Is your goal to become a flight instructor uh, with as minimal amount of time as possible and start making money, or are you kind of along for the ride and just enjoying the process? The, the license portion of it was a little bit of let's get it done. Um, once I got to my instructor, uh, instructor rating, then it was more like, okay, I'm making money. I can relax for just a second and see and broaden my horizon as to what do I want to do professionally and it, within the aviation industry. Um, so while in flight school in Crystal River, it was really cool. And it was, it was, let's get it done. And I was pumping out licenses every two, three months. Um, so that worked out well. And then when I got my instructor rating, which I got it in a flight school that's no longer in existence, that was in Falcon Field, I believe it was. It was called Falcon Aviation in Georgia, uh, really close to Atlanta. And they offered this program because I was wanting to save money in that, in that time. They offered this program, I, I believe it was $5,000. And it was 80 hours of classroom work and then 15 hours of flight time. And you would get out with your instructor rating. And I was like, okay, let's do it. Let's get it intense. Let's, let's do it now. And that was by far my hardest uh, license to date um, was the instructor rating. And I was even more 
scared and nervous because my examiner at that time, you couldn't choose your examiner. Now you can choose your examiner, but the, at that time, the FISDA would assign an examiner to you. Um, so the guy that I got assigned was a former fighter pilot instructor, Delta retired AMP mechanic and aviation lawyer. Oh, cool. He sounds fun. Yeah. yeah and I was like, like oh my God, let me, <laughs> and I think I, I dug my own grave by even researching him even further. Because uh, I started seeing all his accolades and accomplishments, and just to make the story short, short that uh, that that lasted about seven hours and twenty minutes the check ride with flight with flight and oral, and it was insane, man. And you passed, all right? Yeah, first awesome. first time, first try. Dang, that congratulations! Was, that was, uh, yeah, but I, I was sweating bullets, man. <laughs> so, do you regret going to like a crash course for that? Do you wish you would have taken your time on that, or do you think that uh, it, it's not easy, but it is possible to kind of crash course the CFI. I think it's possible. It's entirely up to the individual. I mean, especially if you're one interested in, in making your own binder, uh, the, the notorious binder, some people download it and it's already made. Some people do it from scratch. I did mine from scratch and I knew what was going to come. So I did that all beforehand. But if you're planning to do your own binder and figure everything out while going through the course, I, it's going to be really tough. I would say the more you can get done before you start the course, the, the easier it'll become. And that, that, that held true with everything, with airline training, corporate training, type ratings, whatever. It always helped out to do it, do it beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah, even in anything, when you're doing flight school, the more you can do before, the, the more you'll save and the more proficient you will be in almost anything you do, not even aviation, but just in life in general. Um, what was... So you're CFI. Uh, where did you go next? Is that when you went to Alaska or did you instruct in Florida? I instructed in Florida, but I had several friends that were instructors. And, and again, because instructing was a means to an end here, I was realizing that like my, all my friends were, to put it nicely, were kind of losing their souls while flight instructing and trying to, to, to pump out all those hours. So I was like, okay, well, what, what's a way that I could be an instructor and still enjoy it at the same time. And before I became an instructor, my parents, after graduating, gifted me a, a rating. And they said, hey, you can get whatever rating you are as long as it fits within this budget. And um, I looked up seaplane rating. And I, I thought it would be fun. It would be amazing and all that stuff. Brought in your horizon and your skills and all that. But then I arrived to Jack Brown Seaplane Base. And I fell in love, man. I, I, I flew that cub and I fell in love. Um, so as soon as I finished getting my, my instructor rating, I went down to Jack Brown's through a resume and said, Hey, I, if you don't need anybody right now, I'll come every month until you do need somebody. Um, and so I got super lucky and got a spot to fly for, or instruct at Jack Brown's. And I'm still an instructor at Jack Brown's now part-time, but I, I would never leave that place. That, that place is a family now. And it was enjoy. Yeah, it was very enjoyable to instruct there because you're not only teaching people that 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 are capable of flying very well, but they wanted to be there. That this is a bucket list thing, and it's not like getting a private or instrument that was forced into it because their parents thought that that was a career to follow. Yeah, I'm gonna have to hit you up sometime because I've always wanted to get my seaplane rating. But here's my problem with a seaplane rating: it's not very realistic for you to fly a seaplane after you get that rating. You know, like if say I come down to you, I pay the money, I get the rating, I pass the check ride, whatever it is, and then 
me actually going to rent a seaplane is probably close to zero ever again. You know, I I would I would disagree, especially being you um, holding the podcast that you hold. You know, a lot of individuals that I can guarantee you that own seaplanes, and they will be more than gladly to let you fly. So that's what I tell everybody that 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 has that argument is. It really boils down to your networking skills. I mean, it's always great to have a friend that owns a boat. Now it's always great to have a friend that owns a seaplane. <laughs> That's true. Just level up a little bit. I like it. I need exactly. more friends with seaplanes. My one friend is a uh, a good salesman over at Icon. I know that there's, I don't know if Jack Brown likes Icons too much. I've heard some rumblings that maybe they're not their favorite airplanes, but that might be some access. Well, we are currently now a partnered uh, uh teaching facility for icon so now we have our own icon at jack brown seaplane base oh cool Do you uh, so we, too? we have a yeah we have a great relationship with them and we've instructed all most of their demo guys really um yeah so so I'm, i may have known this guy or not but uh ev- everyone in icon seems very nice and very very easy to work with um and it's a super fun airplane to fly uh, i wouldn't personally buy one myself but I, it's super fun. Imagine a jet ski with wings. Yeah, that'd be sick. It does get a bad rep for some of the past accidents, but it sounds like that might not be necessarily the company's fault. It's just people pushing the limits on what the airplane can actually do. Yeah, correct. I, w- I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I got to talk to my wife now, man. You got me at the seaplane itch again. There was like five years ago. I was like, oh, I should do that. But I was in the middle of training and I was like, I don't really need to spend the money on it. Like I just need to build my hours. But uh, one day, one day I'll hit you up and we'll make it happen. Oh man, you just shoot me a text again and I'll put you in the schedule for a guaranteed. At least go up on one flight or something like that at the very minimum. Mm Ah, uh, you won't be able to. It's like <laughs> it's like eating one McDonald's fry or one Pringles. You can't just do one. That's that's true. <laughs> it's very true. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. You know, as pilots, we're hardwired to focus on what's directly in front of us in the moment: the flight plan, the forecast, ensuring the plane lands smoothly. So it's no wonder that things like your own financial plan can be easy to lose sight of. And I am very guilty of this as well. Our partner, RAA, gets it. That's why they asked me to invite you to participate in a short online survey at raa.com slash pilot to pilot. By answering a few questions, you'll be sharing valuable opinions that can benefit fellow pilots while also getting real-time results showing how your own money management approach compares to your peers and colleagues. Let me tell you, it's a great way to start thinking about your financial outlook beyond your final touchdown on the tarmac. So do me a favor and take a minute to chime in at raa.com slash pilot to pilot. You'll be glad you did, and other pilots will be as well. Again, that's raa.com slash pilot to pilot. Now back to today's episode. Uh, so getting your seaplane rating, wh- I guess, the, what else did you consider? Was it a seaplane or bust? Uh, no. So as soon as I, I applied to other flight schools it, really close to my house, and they didn't respond to me at the time, but Jack Brown's did. So I started instructing at Jack Brown's full time, and then this flight school called me as well. And I was like, well, I can do part-time. Um, so I was doing both and then more jobs started coming. I guess I was very thankful for that, but more jobs started popping out. So at one point I had four jobs at the same time. All instructing? Um, no. So it was one in a flight school and the other one at Jack Brown's. And then, um, I really, I was very fortunate to find a mentor that he was a fully dedicated corporate pilot and businessman. And he, helped me to get into a simulator company called Simcom Aviation. 
And I, I was a seat support on the citation program, and I was translating for all the Spanish-speaking crews. Um, and then I was also a simulator pre-flight uh, technician, I think it was the, the terminology that they would put. But it was basically me having to go to SimCom between 12 o'clock at night and 4 in the morning to pre-flight all the sims that were going to fly the next day. Uh-huh. Yeah. That stinks, but I mean, I'm sure it was great though. Cause I just remember it, whenever I get that early morning sim or late night sim, it's always the worst. You're just like, oh my gosh. But hey, you got to make sure they're up and running, right? You got to make sure everything's okay. People don't understand that those sims have MELs, those sims go down for AOGs. Like it's very similar to an airplane and uh, they're very expensive to, to buy. They're very expensive to keep up. They're actually more expensive to buy than the actual aircraft it's most madness. of the time. Madness. It is. And, and, and these things, I mean, the pre-flight entailed checking every light bulb, checking every flight control and doing a raw data ILS approach and checking the visibility of, of uh, the RVR visibility within the screen and checking the full motion and off motion and all that stuff. And I would do that for in one day, I would do eight to 10 jets. And, and to me, that was amazing because I was coming from flight school from flying and then from flying a J3 Cub, never have touched a jet before in my life, given the opportunity to do this. And I was very, very thankful for it. And that opened the door to start flying right seating and stuff like that on, on, on corporate aircraft. And that opened another world. So it, it was it was everything came at once. And it was somewhat overwhelming at, at times because I was doing Jack Browns in the morning and then flight school in the afternoon and then. Sometimes, and it wasn't every day, but sometimes then I would do uh, the Sims from 12 to 4, and then I would put all of those jobs at hold to go out on a two-day trip in the corporate side. You know, and everybody, all the employers were very, were very nice to me, and very, I was very thankful that they gave me the opportunity to do it all. That's awesome. It, it's so crazy. Like, I was talking about this uh, with some some younger pilots a couple months ago where like it seems like it takes forever to get to a dream job or even like flying jets or getting paid to fly but it really goes by so fast uh, before you know it you are in the situation that you're in where you're overwhelmed with opportunities you have choices and you don't know what the right choice is and it, it really can be overwhelming but it does happen relatively quickly faster than one would think it is it is and I, and I arrived I mean I'm not going to say that I started old but my my counterpart friends were were soloing at 16 and 17 years old and i started when i was 23 that's when i came to this country and at 25 is when i started getting all of these instructor jobs and simulators and corporate and all that stuff and it was all from like there was this one uh gentleman that i i would say was my very first mentor in the corporate side for a little time he used to fly a Kinger out of Crystal River, which was where the flight school was. And he was the, the big guy of the, of, the, of the field, okay? That's how small the airport was. He was a Kinger 200, and he was like the hotshot of the field. And I would go to him and say, hey, man, can I, can I wash your airplane for free? Um, sure. And he would say sure and never really called me to go and fly, even though I insinuated it. Um, and after like the seventh time that I washed that Kinger, man, and I don't know if you – a King or 200 has a T tail and it's hard to get to that tail. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Gotta get a yeah. So, yeah. So, and, and every time that I would wash it, I would ask him questions like, what is this hole right here? And that's the dump, valve, whatever the dump valve. And what is this hole over here? No, that's for the exhaust of the engine. And so every time I would learn something new um, and I knew what a knack event was before even I knew what it did. Um, so then after this, 
cleaning that thing for like seven times. He says, okay, kid, you want to hop on the right seat? And I ended up flying with him for like 55 hours before I had to move on to get my instructor rating and leave the school. Um, but that, that, that really goes to show that it really boils down to just, I mean, networking and being an airport bum, I suggested to everybody just, just bother people and try to find that balance between not being illegal and bothersome to really being persistent. Yeah, don't be creepy. Don't be the creepy kid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Be the nice kid that everyone wants to help out. Don't be the creepy kid that no yep. one wants to help. How do you play, exactly. how do you kind of walk that line though? Because it, it can, you can cross that line without knowing it. You might think you're cool, but you're really kind of being pushy. How did you walk that line? And were you just like, hi, how are you guys doing? Like, how did you, how did you even introduce yourself to these people? Just they recognized you and said, Hey, what's going on? I would just walk up to them. And after that, hello, you would know the entire uh, outcome of the conversation. If the hello was dry, just say, have a good day and move on. You know, if the hello was welcoming and, and that's the beautiful thing about aviation is the people, man, because it's the only place that if you go to a flying community, for example, um, let's say, I don't know, uh, Spruce Creek and you knock on that person's door coming from the roadside and he will look at you with a question mark. You knock on his hangar door coming from the airport side and he'll welcome you. And it's the same individual, just a different approach. So it's just really feeling it out and, and. And that initial hello says a lot. Absolutely. And then would, would those people that you talked to turn into your mentors or did you find mentors other ways? I found mentors other ways as well. But like I said, this Kinger gentleman, he became a mentor by just be, being annoying and offering free <laughs> washes. That's awesome. You know? Um, and the other one... No, keep going. Okay, yeah. And that, that's about it. I mean, I, I didn't really look for mentors. Thankfully, they just appeared in my life. And I openly hearted to took their under their wing. It's so unique how you can find jobs with people in this industry. Like it, it is very true that most of the jobs that you might get are going to be recommendations from people, you know, uh, and, and people take that seriously. Like, uh, yeah, it's about time. Yeah. It's about quality of time. Yeah. It's about being a great person. But sometimes if you're just lucky and you know, the right people, you're going to get to do some really cool stuff in aviation and you never know who that's going to be, and who you can go talk to. Uh, I mean, you had a really unique situation where you're able to go to SimCom and be a tech and also do some cool stuff with translating for other Spanish speaking pilots that might need help or that needed uh, a specific job done. You were able to find that and search that out and either get paid or get flight time. However, the, the situation was there's there's weird things out there in aviation for you to do. You just have to go out and look for them. For sure. There's, there's uh, a thousand ways to skin a cat and, and my way just, happened to, to work with me. It was not easy at, at the time. I was, it was really tough on the body. I only did the simulator stuff for about a year and a half because doing the 12 to four and then sometimes coming back and translate and stuff. It was awesome that I was going through these type ratings for free, getting paid for it while translating, but I couldn't vouch anything for it. I couldn't put anything in paperwork that I'm, you know, I can apply this or that. No, I can't because I only went through the ground portion of the type rating. Um, so it, it, it worked out amazingly, especially on the networking aspect of things. It worked out great. And to be quite frank, I think I've had something like six or seven jobs in aviation and I've only been interviewed for one. Everything else has been word of mouth and being a nice guy. And I, there's a mentor that told me that he, he hires personalities because anybody can be taught how to fly. That's, um, I'd say it's 95% of the 
percent of the case, there are probably 5% of people that can't be taught how to fly. So <laughs> I say it's true to a case, but yeah, if you can't fly, it, it gets found out pretty quickly. You'll get weeded out relatively soon. Yeah, exactly. But the, the way I saw it was you can get the job being a nice guy. It's your skills that keep the job. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. What was your, was your goal ever? Cause you kind of stayed on the, the GA flight instructing, whether you did some other stuff and you went to Alaska now you're a corporate pilot. Has the goal always been stay on the fun side? And I don't mean really fun side. Someone might get offended by that, but to stay on the, the, the GA side, <laughs> or do you have dreams of flying 787s to India to wherever? That's funny that you say 787s to India. Yes. I would, I would love to fly for United airlines, a 787 to India to go and visit my family. Yes. I would love to do that. But I also knew that uh, I, you, you hit the nail on the word fun. I'm not saying airlines is not fun, but airlines have their, their nature and their positive aspects in other areas of it. Um, so I wanted to enjoy my whole upbringing until I end up in a wide body legacy airliner. And if I don't, the job that I currently have, I'm very thankful and happy and I enjoyed every second of it. Um, but it really went from Jack Brown's that opened the doors again from networking and knowing Jack Brown's is kind of very well known in the seaplane industry or the seaplane world. And so that opened the doors to be able to go to Alaska. And man, I, I'm telling you, I never in a thousand years thought that I was going to be a dedicated professional seaplane pilot for a good chunk of my career. Not, not at all, but that opened the doors and then Alaska happened. And then I went to a 135 operator in Alaska, amazing operation. It took me several months of research as well to find a place because I knew my wife was going to be coming with me and I didn't want to go to a small fisherman's town, nothing that I have against fishermen, but I knew that I wanted to take, go to a place that was somewhat comfortable for my wife as well. So I stumbled upon Alaska seaplanes, which Funny enough, was the same company that my boss at Jack Brown's used to fly for. And so he recommended me to that uh, job and it ended up working out. I did a season with them and the, the, the teachings and the training was spectacular. Um, and I enjoyed my butt off in Alaska flying uh, schedule and non-schedule routes. We had like the mail contract and we had a simple stuff, man. I mean, you're, you're, you're feeding a, a, a town that only has barely a hundred people and taking them eggs, pizza, and gallons of milk to taking the mail to taking, uh, people that came to visit in the cruises, take them on a scenic route around Alaska. And that was amazing in itself. Um, and so when I did that, I was like, okay, well, I got it off my system and I checked that box of Alaska. So now let me, let me go and try to join an airline. So at that time, I joined uh, ExpressJet, which went uh, bankrupt, unfortunately, or furloughed due to COVID-19. And so I joined ExpressJet and I joined the regional because I was like, well, I, I want to get my ATP. Um, my hours are there. And now it cost all this money to get an ATP because back in the day, it was simply another license. Now you have to go through ATP, CTP and all that That's stuff. Cool. So the airlines at that, <laughs> yep, at, at, at that time were offering five-figure bonuses with ATP, CTP paid for, for only one-year contract, one or two years, depending on the airline. So I was like, okay, well, let's do that. Let me join a regional, get some great training. And at the time, I went for ExpressJet because ExpressJet had the same training curriculum as United and was 
at the time, one of the very few regionals that was AQP as well. Um, so that worked out. The training was amazing. And I finished my ground was like a week before starting Sims and the company went under. That's crazy. Um, so yeah. Did you, so you got, got your ATP go. or you, no, you didn't get your ATP. At least you got the CTP paid for, right? So that's what occurred. Correct. So I got the ATP, I got the CTP, but didn't get the ATP, <laughs> but I got a bonus to keep. No um, way. So I was like, okay, well, let me go to the company that I was working before Simcom. And they thankfully took very good care of me. And I got my ATP there on a citation type rating. And so I was like, okay, well, I got furloughed. I am out of a job. I got taken care of the, the side of, of, of the ATP. That way I didn't lose the ATP, CTP written and all that stuff that has a time frame to it. And it was either pay $6,000, $7,000 to get it in a light twin on an ATP check right or pay a little bit more. And because they knew me and they took care of me, it was a great deal and get it in a citation. Mind you, I've never really flown PIC on a jet or anything. So it was, and this was not AQP. This was old style. Here are all the manuals, learn it and come back and do a check ride. And just to, to, to give you an example in training at Simcom, they made me do an NDB approach in a citation at night in New York. Not not for the check ride, but for the check ride prep. And I was like, oh my God, if this is gonna come in my check ride, I started freaking out. And that's why the NDB thing came up again in my in my head. And I was like, oh man, this was my struggle. And the, the instructor came um and said, Hey, relax, don't worry about it. The check ride is gonna be a breeze compared to the check ride prep. Long story short, I got my ATP. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, I'm out of a job, and I call the company Alaska Seaplanes that I was working for in Alaska and tell, talk to the chief pilot and tell them, Hey, I'm out of a job. Do you guys are looking for anybody? Well, no, not really because this was in the midst of COVID or the startup of it and everybody getting furloughed and stuff like that. So it was like, we're actually letting go of people as well. And we're only keeping the year round guys, the ones that stay during the winter. Um, so, okay, well, but, and he tells me, but I put your name in, into this lodge that recently lost their pilot. Um, and I was like, okay, that's great. And he tells me that on a Tuesday. And then on Thursday, a, a phone call comes in and it's the owner of the lodge. And I was like, Hey, I stumbled upon this name from you from Alaska seaplanes. We're looking to see if you're interested. Mind you, I, I'm not looking for any of this. And this just appeared, thankfully, um, and I was like, sure, I'll do it. But uh, the only thing is my wife, um, I, I'm not going to go without my wife. And they were like, okay, we'll put her to work too. And <laughs> no way. that's awesome. So on Thursday, we packed our bags and we were already at the lodge working on Sunday. And the lodge is in Alaska um, or no? Yeah, the lodge is in Alaska. It's a remote island in Alaska. It's a luxury, is it a luxury fishing lodge, um, which they only have one beaver. And that I was the only pilot for the lodge. And my job was to basically keep the lodge fed. Um, and the, I was, I was the gopher for, I'd like to call myself the gopher, go for this, go for that. So I would get from outboard 400 or 300 horsepower Yamaha engines for a boat to a carton of eggs and a gallon of milk. So it was really cool and very fulfilling job. And to this date, it's the best job I've ever had. Not only from the flying aspect of things, but the managing side was spectacular. So it's um, your job to keep this place fed. What happens when 
you're there for an extended period of time. The weather's too low to leave for like a weeks. Like, is there a stockpile of food or is it like, yeah, you got to go, dude. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good luck. Yes. We, we, we stock up. Um, and, and you would Alaska seaplanes the the operator that was working for really taught me uh, as much as you could about dealing with the weather in Alaska and, and, and the weather in Alaska is a pretty big deal. Um, but yes, we would stock up in at the lodge and, Worst case scenario that I couldn't leave for the next four to five days, we would go by boat. But by boat, it would take eight hours. Um, the flight would take only an hour. Um, so we would do that if it was really necessary, but it would be a long ordeal. And at times, I was one of them, one of the guys going on the boat to help out because I was not only the pilot at, at a lodge, you're really not only the title that you're hired to be, you wear multiple hats. So I was doing all the errands and pick up all the food myself and then loading it myself in the airplane. So you're, you're a one man show entirely into this, into this operation, which I loved. I mean, it was amazing to see the fact that I just bought that bottle of shampoo and everybody in the lodge is washing themselves with that bottle of shampoo, you know? So it was very rewarding to see that. Um, but again, that was the best job that I had, but then an opportunity arised because I did Alaska for about three years and I was doing Alaska in the summers and Jack Brown's and corporate flying in the winters. And it, it sounds very smart and it was, I enjoyed it a lot, but there was a lot of fluctuation in terms of the, the jobs, you know, I wouldn't be flying corporate as much as I, I, I would like to, or I wasn't making ends meet when it comes to, I would make amazing money in the summer, but not so much good money in the winters. So I was like, I would like to get something more stable. And while working for this lodge, this opportunity to be flying the job that I'm currently at uh, came up. And it was a hard decision really to take because I love that job. And that was a dream job and, and everything was amazing and beautiful. And then here they offer me to fly an international, essentially wide body corporate or large cabin jet um, all over the world and getting well paid. and. And I, I couldn't say no. So now I'm doing this job while my wife still works four months out of the year at that lodge. No way. Do you guys go back and forth and live in the lodge then? Can you live wherever you want? Or do you guys just not with each other for those four months? Uh, a little bit of both. So this job that I'm currently at, it's a home-based job, meaning I, I can live wherever I want within the United States. Yeah, but um, I'm sure when they came up with the that, they is. didn't think of the lodge in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> correct correct so but but it's been working out great That's i mean good. and uh i'm supposed to go and visit her here shortly in a, in a couple of months um but uh, i mean it's it's we don't have any kids right now and that this is i think we both thought that this is the time to do a move like this you know we're both making good money good good financial decisions and good moves uh professionally on both aspects Absolutely. You got to sacrifice while you can, man. I'll tell you what, when you got a kid, things change. That's for sure. <laughs> I know. I yeah. know. So it, it's coming for sure at some point. Yeah. What's your, if you, if you have one or if you want to tell it, what's your kind of like biggest Alaska experience that maybe, uh, maybe got you a little scared that you're like, I should not be in this situation or, or maybe one where you're like, Oh, that's why they say the Alaska weather's crazy. Yeah. So it was, it was early in my Alaska career. I was uh, maybe a month in 
And um, I took some hunt, not some hunters, some uh, viewers. There, there was this bear guided tour that they would go and spot bears in a specific place in in uh, in Alaska, close to Juneau, southwest of Juneau. And taking them there, the weather was kind of crummy, but we made it just fine and dropped off the passengers. And then we would wait for like four hours. So we would fly back to Juneau to do some other flights, if possible, if the company would sell it out. And then I had to go and pick them back up uh, because I was, again, relatively new. Um, I, I guess I pushed the weather a little bit too much, too much for my own comfort. And you know that you've done that whenever um, you, you, you kind of your, your, your heart is beating really fast and you're kind of shaking. And so I was forced to I was going through a pass. And I, I was forced to start doing a 180 degree turn because the pass closed on the other end. And this was taught by, by, by the company several times, but to see it firsthand was a definite eye-opener at the time. And in the Beaver, you can't really do a steep turn without adding flaps or it'll stall on you. Um, so you're having to bank a 180-degree turn within a pass. You can't climb because the, the, the clouds are, are right above you. There's a deck. And then you can't land because it's ground under you. And I have floats. And uh, you're having to reduce power to initiate that turn to reduce your radius of turn while pumping flaps all within raining and clouds and all that stuff. So it was really interesting to to learn that and to the, the, the aspect of decision making and stressful scenarios in Alaska really helped me a ton to know a lot more about myself. So I would say there wasn't really any really scary moments, but there was moments that really opened your eyes to to say, wow, this is why. You get paid the big bucks in Alaska, and this is why Alaska has the fame that it has. If you could do, if you could make as much money doing anything, would it be flying seaplanes? Like, say, a seven eighty seven captain paid the same as flying uh, Jack Brown instructor. Would you choose that over seven eighty seven, or would you choose seven eighty seven? Oh, I would choose a seaplane by far. I would say that the the ideal job would be flying like a twin otter on floats. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, don't they have those in like the Maldives know. or Bali? You can go out there and go fly people to a yep. resorts. Yep, in the Maldives. Yep. There you go. That's then your uh, wife can work at the resort. It's a match made in heaven, man. I know, I know, <laughs> but 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 there's no job security. There's yeah, no, 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 uh, no the money's not there, and the airlines you can't really beat the. It's it seems like it's the only spot in aviation where the longer you stay, the more you make and the less you work. Um, and and that's just simple math. Again, I, it's not like I, I'm not happy where I am. I'm extremely happy where I am, but it seems like the places like you, where you're at, um, the airlines and very secluded part 91 gigs are like the spot to be, you know, because you have all of the above, you have great flying, you have quality of life, you've got good financial income. And so it's finding that in aviation where it's, it either takes time or effort or both. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one, the huge benefit of the airlines is the 16% direct contribution for your retirement <laughs> every year. And then you, just what you said, the the more seniority you get, the longer you're there, then the more you make and the less you work, which is not really the case in 91 or 135. You're usually going to be, I mean, maybe if you become a chief pilot or you can hire people, you can maybe work less, but you're going to be working for your money. You know, like it's just kind of how it is right now in the stage of that side of the industry, which it could change in the future. Who knows uh, how things progress, especially when they're going to have to compete with the airlines more with, uh, with hiring and, and 
just the airlines with their new contracts coming out soon. So it's going to be really interesting to see. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and I would agree totally on that. And, but at the same time, corporate is, it's, it's a matter of time until corporate just becomes better and better and better as, as the airlines become more competitive, the corporate is forced to be more competitive to, to retain their individuals and guys. So, and now like NetJets and, and Flexit are both going for AQP training, you know, so there, everything is getting very standardized and, and more money everywhere. So it's, it's not a bad time to be anywhere really in aviation. And I will say one of those companies is AQP, full AQP, 100% 121 training. I won't say which one, but one of those is. So <laughs> one of them is already accomplished. I, I think I know. I think I know. <laughs> Just saying. I have a check right every 12 months. So. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. But anyways. I didn't yeah. want to point out any names. Yeah, no, no I'm not calling any names out. But I mean, I agree. 135, um, 91, 91K. I think that they are, they might lag a little bit. So maybe say the airlines come out their contracts in two years. It might be three, four, maybe five years before you see that side of the industry really catch up. But I think that there's potential for that side of the industry to be equal, if not better than some airline jobs. It just depends on how everything plays out. It depends on how people fly. Depends on where the money goes and um, if everything plays out in their favor. So there's a lot of things that could keep it from that. But I think there's a good chance of it being hopefully just as good as a 787 job. I mean, some people might call me crazy, but I really do think that there's that possibility. No, no, I, I don't think you're crazy at all. I mean, I'm really happy in the corporate gig that I'm at right now. It's a 135 gig. And and I would have to essentially take a pay cut right now, even as an FO, to go to even a legacy airline. For the first three years or something like that, you know? So it, I'm, I'm very happy where I'm at and you get to fly internationally and you get to fly all over the place and it's not the same routes at all. And you're staying in great hotels and you're staying for long periods of time. I mean, I feel like corporate right now is what the airlines used to be back in their heyday of Pan Am and TWA, where they were flying to awesome places and staying there for three, four days, five days, and then coming back, you know? But now the demand is so high that they really can't, they can't afford to do that. So that, that that's why now people are staying for hours in a destination rather than days. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not going on where we are. <laughs> we are in and out, in and out, in and out, hotel, go to sleep, 12, maybe 14 hours off and going right back to the day. Oh, don't get me wrong. That happens in this one too. And I appreciate it. I mean, I, I one of the reasons I, I, I accepted this job was because of the amount of flying that they do and and the destinations that we go to. And I couldn't say no to fly a golf stream, you know? So it, 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 it all worked out for the best and to be coming from a beaver on floats to then jump on an international operation on a golf stream was definitely, most definitely a learning curve. I was going to say, how hard, With, how difficult was that for you? Um, it, I thought it was going to be a little bit more difficult from the type rating aspect of things, but it, it really played a part all my time and SimCom helped me a ton to understand and, and grasp the idea of the game that it is to, to cooperate and graduate. Yeah, type of thing. Yeah. You know, so, so that really helped me out a ton. And, and I was very clear that me getting that type rating was a license to learn. And every time that I go out with the different captains that we fly, it's, it's always a learning experience. And, and it's amazing too to be to be able to do this because in the 135 aspect of corporate in 91 legs you could be flying left seat PIC. Um, it's something that you can't really do on the 121 side, you know. So it's really cool on this in, in this side of the of aviation that you can dabble in different styles of flying and in different 
our building times and in, in different destinations. So it, it works out for the best for me at this time in my life. Absolutely. I mean, who knows? You might find yourself flying Gulf streams and they just keep getting bigger and bigger and faster and faster. So it's a, it's a battle between Gulfstream and Bombardier to keep building the biggest and best. I guess Bombardier just came out with the G at the, what is it? The global 8,000, which now beats the 700. So who knows? Yep. Yep. And the, the global set 8,000 is essentially the same as the 7,500, just with some tweaks. It's like saying a G650 and a G650 ER. It's the same aircraft, just with, with better avionics aspect of things. And, more juice and umph in certain areas. I think the only reason but, they did it was so they could say that they're the fastest uh, business jet again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely definitely a, a a race between between those two. It seems like it. It's but, good though. Uh, uh, it's it's good for aviation. For sure, for sure, competition thrives in every aspect of, of an industry, not just aviation. But Absolutely. Uh, I I'm very happy here, and 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 I you don't know, or I guess you don't understand and grasp the what you have until potentially you don't have it so that's where i'm trying to work on is is to be more present and the fact that i can overfly a thunderstorm where all the airline oh guys gosh, are dodging yeah. and moving side to side where when we're in the four flight level fours and up and up uh, is is definitely a luxury that that i don't i don't take for granted Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I love aviation too. Like the, if you ever feel like you're tired of corporate and you want to try airlines, you can go do it. If you want to leave the airlines, come to corporate. Not as many people do that, but you have the capability to do that. Uh, it's interesting though. It's the grass is not always greener. It's like once you start going down a certain road, like maybe it makes more sense for you to stay that road because you get used to those lifestyles uh, and leaving from corporate, maybe to airlines isn't worth some things like you're going to miss going, you're going to miss the life you had. And the grass isn't always greener, but uh, for some people, it's uh, if you want to go fly airlines or you want to go fly corporate, just go do it. Just have fun. Just enjoy your life. You want to fly for the lodge and uh, do some cool stuff? Go do that. For sure, for sure. I, I mean, I, I can't agree more with it. And I, I even right now, I miss flying in Alaska. To be quite frank with you, but but you know, you did it for for the move of a greater good, not just for yourself, but for for a family. You know, I mean, having to move every season from state to state is not, I, I can imagine that it wouldn't be easy on a family, especially at a, at a remote lodge, you work your butt off, you work hard and, and it's 120 days straight of work. There's no days off, you know? So it's a, uh, it's, it has its ups and downs quite literally. And it's, it has its benefits. And so, yeah, it's just doing whatever works for you and, and your family at the time. Absolutely. And now it is time for the rapid fire section. Today's rapid fire section is sponsored by Sirius XM Aviation. With high resolution coast to coast composite radar and cloud to cloud, cloud to ground lightning updated every 2.5 minutes, along with always available weather products like METARs, Echo Tops, and Storm Tracks, Sirius XM lets you fly confidently knowing that your weather information is available at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Check out AOPA.org forward slash Sirius XM to get a two month free trial to try these products out for yourself. Well, Chris, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready for them? I think so. What's your favorite airplane ever made? Uh, ever made? Um, a Grumman Widgeon. It's uh, the perfect mixture between tail dragger, multi-engine, fun float flying, and long cross countries with people behind you. What about a corporate jet? The Lockheed Jetstar. Dang. Good answer. What about airline? Uh, Concorde. Ugliest airplane ever made. 
so this one is kind of rare, but it always sticks to me because of my grandfather. So uh, it's called the Hanley Page Victor, and it used to be a Cold War era bomber. Um, and it's super ugly. If you want to Google it, or was I mean, it American or British or what was it? It, it, it was British. So okay. my grandfather used to fly for the RAF, oh, Avro Lancasters. And so he, uh, I, because of looking into his, his stories and history, I stumbled upon this airplane and I never forgot it. The Hanley Page Victor. Um, that later it. in life. Yeah. Look it up. You'll see. <laughs> I, I, you might, I might change your mind with a no, Piaggio. Man. Never, never. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not rational about this. All right. It's more of a statement from here now. <laughs> Yeah, it was a Cold War era bomber, and then it became a a, a tanker after the Cold War. And awesome. it's a massive four-engine aircraft, but it's super ugly. What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Um, the amount of delayed gratification that there was going to be in this industry and the amount of expectations you would have to manage as a crew member. I like that. That's good. Who's one person in the industry you'd like to meet most? Uh, I, there's a, I don't know, man. There's a bunch of names that come to mind. What's the first one? Um, I would say the, uh, uh, Chris, Chris and Dave Hatfield. Chris, Chris Hatfield is a, or was a, a Canadian astronaut. And uh, his brother, Dave, was a Canadian airline pilot and dedicates to flying warbirds and stuff like that. Or if I had to say it, another name like, uh, Kevin LaRosa or David Allen, those are the guys, uh, yeah. Any of those guys in charge of, of Hollywood style flying, I think they have the best job in the industry because they're doing all the cool flying and amazing aircraft. Yeah. Their job's pretty sick. I, uh, I would love to, to get on that and have some fun with that. Bring them to the podcast, man. Bring them to the podcast. I've talked to Kevin before, but I think, I I don't know if I got busy or he got busy, but it never kind of came to fruition. So I'll have to reach back out. He's probably a big shot now. You know, he's been doing some cool stuff recently. So I might have to pay him or something. (laughs) Go raise some money. (laughs) He needs to sell some more coffee. (laughs) There you go. Uh, What's your favorite thing about aviation? Uh, The people. The people by far. What's the hardest flight you've ever flown? Um, Alaska comes to mind. And when I was flying for that part 135 operator, uh, there was a specific destination that you even needed a checkout flight to even get to that place. It was called Elfin Cove. And it was one of these areas where it was an open water, uh, destination. So you were dealing with swells and heavy winds and it was right next to a mountain. And unfortunately the, the winds were always coming from that mountain that would cause these huge rotors to come down and boats would be landing in the, or or coming in through the same spot that you were landing through. And it was a one way in one way out and there was no chance for go around. So once you committed to the landing, you had to land because there was no, you, you couldn't go around at all. In fact, you would even get on a Marine radio and tell the, tell the, the boats, Hey, I'm coming inbound landing in two minutes, three minutes, whatever, because it was such a bottleneck area that if, if the, Boats came in at the same time, you wouldn't fit. Dang. That sounds like fun. So just a bad experience with that or just um, what was no, the specific it was just, flight? It was just challenging. Yeah. yeah, it was just challenging to go there every time. And especially when the weather was crummy. 
But when the weather was beautiful, you couldn't believe that you were going there or yeah. getting paid to do it. You well, know? <laughs> I bet it wasn't beautiful all the time. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> What's uh, your most enjoyable flight you've ever flown? Probably the same place, just with nice weather. <laughs> uh, any family flight. Uh, I flew with my dad by, by himself. I took my mom and my siblings. I've taken my wife. And a- a- any flight with a friend or family is always like super awesome. It puts a huge smile on my face. What is your favorite airport to land at? Uh, favorite airport? I would say... Mm, can I... Can I say two? Yeah, go for it. Uh, is a private field called Leeward Air Ranch in uh, in Florida, and then the other one would be Sun Valley, Idaho, Ooh, in Sun the Valley's morning. Cool. I like Sun Valley. That's a good answer. What's your least favorite airport? Yeah, the least favorite. Least favorite. I don't think I have one, man. Because not not even Teterboro. I don't like. I, I mean. <laughs> I, I, I even enjoy going to Teterboro. Yeah, so I actually do too. Yeah, I don't know why it gets so much bad rep. I, I don't think I have one really because every even the the middle of nowhere airports have their charm, and even the most busiest have their charm. So, would yeah, you rather I think fly I'll pass IFR? On that one. Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? VFR. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, cities, Alaska, seas, swells, whatever? What What's your favorite kind of scenery, topography to fly over? Beachy mountains. <laughs> I like it. What's your dream flight? Uh, my dream flight. So if you dream had flight, yeah, if you had like one one airplane to one destination, what would it be? Okay, I would fly a twin otter on Amphib floats to the East River in New York City. There you go. We can make. I feel like you can make that happen. Uh, yeah, there's guys that do that on a caravan and stuff, but not on a Twin Otter. And I would like the Twin Otter 400 with the new like glass cockpit avionics oh, inside yeah, of it. Oh, yeah, for sure, Oof. yeah. Come on, man. We're not peasants here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite airport food? So let's say you land in some cool new city. You would like to get some uh, some local food. What's your go-to? Mexican, Italian? Uh, what are you looking for? Chick-fil-A, um, Chipotle, whatever. If it's a fly-in, so if I'm flying for food, it would be Arcadia on taco Tuesdays, that's a, an airport in Florida. Um, and if it's for, for me to go from the FBO, it would be either anything local or if it has to be a chain, it would be like Chipotle or Chick-fil-A. There you go. Good answers. Airbus or Boeing? Airbus. Favorite airline livery? Uh, Icelander. Icelander has their, their Aurora. Um, on their 757s that the engines are yellow and the fuselage is painted as an Aurora Borealis. That's cool. Would you it's rather fly awesome. the longest trip possible or as many short trips as you could do in a day? Uh, what In what aircraft? Depends on the aircraft. Ooh. In the Gulfstream, the longest possible, period. Yeah, I was going to say a beaver. In the beaver, as many legs as possible, as many touch and goes as possible. <laughs> I like it. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Do you, if you have one, what's the biggest regret in your career? Not starting earlier. What's the biggest win of your career? Uh, landing a job with Jack Brown seaplane base. Would you rather fly a CRJ or an ERJ? ERJ. Piper or Cessna? 
Cessna. 141 training or 61 training? If you could all do it over again or recommend anyone, what would it be? Uh, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I would you have to choose. The There's a gun to your head that. right now. You have to choose. <laughs> okay. If it was my kid, I yeah. would put him under 141. Okay. What about your favorite airline? So it could be a Venezuelan airline. It could be Air India. It could be United. What's your favorite airline? If it's a United States airline, United. If it's an international airline, Qantas. I love it. I've never flown on Qantas before, but I'll have to take your word for it. They have, it's the only airline with no deaths. In, oh, uh, 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 Rain Man, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. I, uh, had to, I had to look that up as soon as I heard it because I heard it from there. That's really funny. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. Those are all, I guess I have one more question, but it's, um, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you reaching out and just saying, Hey, if you ever want someone to come on, let me know. And I was like, all right, cool. How about tomorrow? <laughs> and you're like, let's do it. <laughs> so it, it, you had good timing, but if someone was listening to this, they really loved your story. They loved the, the path that you set yourself on. What are three tips that you'd give someone, whether they're, they're young, they are changing careers, they're later, later in life, they want to get into flying. What are three tips to have a successful career in flying? Um, network, outwork everybody next to you and around you, and focus on the moment and not on the people around you. Everybody that you're outworking, don't look at their progress and just focus on yours so you can really enjoy every moment that you're going through. Because I've stumbled a and gone through the, the not enjoying part and trying to continue moving forward and forward and forward. And you realize that it passes by way quicker than you think. Yeah. Just like so we we're talking about talk earlier. to everyone once. Yeah. Yep. Oh, those, those are great advice. And it's hard not to compare yourself to other people. It might not, a. It, it's just, it is it's the nature of the beast, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's even in your own podcast, there's, there's some guys that you've interviewed, man, that makes you feel like crap, you know? Because the, these guys are wonder kids or amazing people that, that, that accomplish so much in such a young age. And all you have to do is just really focus on yourself. And if you're continuously doing every day something towards that goal, there is no way you can fail. You can lose a battle, but not the war. I like that. That's good. We'll end on that. Chris, thank you so much for calling the podcast, man. This will be coming out on Tuesday. I really appreciate your time. All right, man. Thanks so much for your time and take care of your newly born and say hello to your wife for me. I will do, man. I appreciate it. Have a good day. All right, man. Take care. See ya. And that's a wrap of episode 226. If you enjoyed that podcast, let us know on Pilot to Pilot on Instagram. You can follow us at Pilot's Coffee as well. Email me, pilot to pilot HQ at gmail.com. Coffee will be coming soon. Oshkosh is coming up. Let me know who's going. I am currently working, trying to get some days off. Don't know if the beginning of the week or the end of the week, but let me know. I hope everyone's having a good day. And as always, happy flying.